Welcome here this morning. Hope you feel welcome. We're glad that you're here. And those of you that are joining us live stream, I think Diane got a text saying that the live stream was January 14. I hope that's not the perfect. Uh, we have we've been working through the Gospel of John, and and I I think probably we'll work through the first. Oh, I got to back up. Thank you, thank you, thanks, Mackenzie. Some of you have asked. I went with Professor Gord uh, up to Thompson to visit Bert Brown, who's a, a wonderful man of faith, a missionary, and we wanted to see him in case he all of a sudden got called home. You know what I mean by that. Uh, so here's a picture of us together with him at the old folks' home. We went up on a Monday uh, and came back on Wednesday. If you can go to the next one. Uh, we also, we met with a number of missionaries, so uh, Morgan Serger, who is the director of What Was Continental and is Interact, and Kyla Platt, Travis Harms, who has spoken in this church. Um, oh, we also met with, oh boy, the name is gone. They were youth leaders. Somebody help me. Wyatt and Vera, thank you. Just a bit of a brain fart. Um, we met with them, we had supper with them as well, and then we went up to uh, Nelson House, about an hour north of Thompson, uh, to the reserve, uh, checked ourselves into the reserve, got a pass to get in, and then met with Oliver, that's the picture there. Uh, go to the next one. Uh, that's Oliver and me giving each other a hug. Man of uh, faith, who's had a tough, uh, tough journey, but he's struggling and, and trying to follow the Lord. Uh, go to the next one. Uh, then we met with another couple, uh, wonderful believers uh, there in Nelson House, and that kind of rounded out our two days there, and then we drove back. We passed Kurt Reimer on the way, didn't see him because of all of the dusting, snow and everything, um, but we were grateful that we got there and back safely. All right, let's go to our, our series on the Gospel of John, and and. The book itself can actually, the way John writes it, can be divided into two sections. The book of Signs, which is the first 12 chapters, and that's where I think we're going to end this series. We might pick it up and do the last uh, chapters of John 13 to 21. Uh, but the book of Signs, uh, Jesus works public signs conveying to Jews and to us the nature of his identity, and that's why of these signs. Uh, a miracle is a work of power, but John uses the word sign because it actually points to something, and we'll get to that. Uh, 13 to 21 is the book of glory, where Jesus interprets the hour of glorification. And just so you know, when we talk about Jesus' glorification, as you go through the book of John, you come to realize that what he means is his death and victory on the cross. Yes, I put those two words together, death, victory. Uh, so that's, that's that second half of the book. Uh, the book of signs, which is these first chapters, which we'll start uh, this today with the first sign, Jesus interprets, um, he, he concentrates on festivals and institutions of Judaism. And he uses these festivals and institutions of Judaism as an interpretive vehicle that gives clear insight into who he is. And we're going to, like I said, we're going to look at the first one today. Uh, so throughout this section, we'll find Jesus appearing at important events in Judaism and exploiting symbols that are associated with those events. And of course, today, as Dalen read, uh, we have this wedding at Canaan, which was a very important event, and Jesus is there. 
The reason he does this is he wants to make clear his own identity and, and also providing in abundance what these events promise. Okay, so again, we see the Old Testament as a foreshadowing, as a prototype to the real thing. Jesus arrives and he gives in abundance and he's also a fulfillment of what's been promised earlier. And even so, he's somewhat misunderstood. I'll give you an example. For instance, Jesus appears at the Passover in John chapter 6. He appears at the Passover, which was a festival commemorating the miraculous departure from Egypt. And the food, uh, manna, that miracle of manna that was given to them during their sojourn through the desert. Then he feeds this Galilean audience miraculously with an abundance of food. Which he follows up by announcing that he is the living bread. Okay, so you, you have to catch the connection. He, he's not just feeding people. He's also giving a sign. He's pointing to who he is. And of course, there's miscomprehension. People don't quite understand. In fact, if you read in 6 verse 52, the crowds wonder how they can eat Jesus. <laughs> they just don't get it. When he says, I am the living bread, they do not understand. Well, Jesus has selected a number of representative settings in which his appearance bears some symbolic theological meaning for Judaism and for us. The story of Canaan, therefore, is far more than a story about a wedding and some wine. And yes, I have some water and some pseudo-wine on the table here in front of me. It's a story that carries remarkable symbolism for Jews and their Messiah. It is a story that makes sweeping commentary on the world into which Jesus is coming. They have no wine isn't simply a comment about panic at a wedding feast. It's a theological statement about Judaism now meeting its Messiah in his very first miracle. You see, without the Messiah, we also have no wine. There's no gas in the tank. There's no power. Without the Holy Spirit, human effort doesn't get us very far. So, this is a theological statement about Judaism, and now meeting that Messiah in his first miracle. So, technically, it's about messianic replacement, replacing the old with the new, and it's about abundance. And you'll see that soon. Let's talk about the wedding. In the village culture of Palestine, weddings were important events. They were announced well in advance, and they were recognized by the entire village. And in this case, Canaan and uh, Nazareth aren't that terribly far apart. This was a big, big event. In some respects, these were the chief celebrations enjoyed during the year. As such, the wedding provides imagery for messianic celebration and joy as well. When the Jews would reflect on what heaven or the arrival of the Messiah would be like, their thoughts turned to banquets. The wedding banquet was a foremost model that came to mind. It's kind of happy that recently, when someone asked me to speak at their funeral, and I asked them what they wanted me to say, they said, talk about heaven. And as I was making my trip to Vida and thinking about this, I decided to preach on the Luke 14 passage, the banquet, the invitation to a banquet. Because I decided that that's a description of heaven. It's an invitation to a banquet. And suddenly I realized, John agrees with me. Or I agree with John. It doesn't really matter. 
Heaven is a banquet. And so this wedding feast is a great place for the Messiah to unveil who he is and what that means. While following a public betrothal, the ceremony itself could last for as long as a week. In a nighttime procession, the groom would walk with his friends to the bride's house, collect her, and then lead a procession back to his home where the celebration would begin. Those of you who are getting married, uh, maybe follow suit. <laughs> well, maybe not. When appropriate custom, like providing wine for guests for seven days, wasn't followed, it was a public shame for the couple. Therefore, the concern when the feast suddenly starts to run out of wine, 2 verse 3. This is not merely an embarrassing situation, it is dishonoring crisis for the host. In other words, what we have here is we have this massive celebration, this joyous celebration, one of the great events of the year, and suddenly this thing is going to be a, an unmitigated disaster. I need to tell you that wine was the normal beverage at meals in the Greco-Roman world. And uh, Jesus did not abstain from wine, nor from party festivities. In fact, he was accused of partying. He was not antisocial. But in case you misunderstand what I'm saying, that doesn't mean he was drunk either. Jesus' miracle is less important than the implications of his arrival in the setting of Judaism. I'm going to say that again. Jesus' miracle is less important than the implications of his arrival in the setting of Judaism. John is making a firm statement that Judaism and us are to see and hear. The Messiah has arrived, and the messianic banquet, portrayed as a wedding feast, has begun. The Messiah has arrived, and the wedding feast, the banquet, has begun. The Messiah has not just appeared in Judaism amidst its festivities. He has come to fulfill and upend what he finds. He has come to fulfill and upend what he finds. Secondly, let's look at those words that have to do with time. Notice that this chapter starts with on the third day. And if you read the first chapter, you'll find on the next day, on the next day, on the next day, and we have, we have a lot going on here. If you add them all up, it looks like it's seven days, which is the number of perfection. But in any event, John intends us to see this story symbolically. And in verse 1, he mentions the third day. For some, it's an innocent and simply chronological reference to Jesus' progress through Galilee. For others, the third day suggests an inevitable reference by John to the coming third day of the resurrection. See, that third day is really important because Jesus rose on the third day. We talk about the cross, and we actually have a symbol of the cross here, but we need to talk every bit as much about the resurrection because the resurrection is the victory. It's the victory. Certainly, all of Scripture portrays God's keen sense of timing. Time is important. And Mary's statement in verse 3, they have no more wine, prompts Jesus to respond in an unexpected way. Woman, why do you involve me? Or what do we have in common? 
In a sense, Mary is presuming on her relationship with him as her son. And yet Jesus redefines this here. He cannot act under her authority, but must instead follow the course that has been determined for him by God. Okay? I answer to higher authority. I answer to higher authority. Mary may have expected, we don't know, she may have expected that Jesus would use the situation to call attention to himself in a way that would further his messianic program. But his hour had not yet come. Second reference to time. Later references point to the cross as the focal point of the hour. My hour has not come. His use of the word my hour refers to the cross. In Mark, in Mark's gospel, Jesus is so reluctant to disclose his identity prematurely that the term messianic secret has been coined to describe his reticence. John's reluctance in, Jesus' reluctance in John is explained in terms of his hour had not yet come. And, and, and I keep insisting that Jesus didn't come only to die on the cross, because he could have come one day, died the next day, and gone. He also came to show us how to live. He came to prepare the disciples. He came to unveil what this new kingdom was about, and he needed time for that. Well, if you escalate the conflict prematurely, now you're shortening the time that you have. So Jesus is managing time. So you notice he often says to, when he casts out demons or he heals someone, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. He's, he's managing his, his public persona. And of course, we all know that that last miracle, raising Lazarus, pushes it over the edge and the Jewish leadership connived to crucify him. Okay? So if he would have raised Lazarus here in his first miracle, maybe his hour would come prematurely. You understand what I'm saying, I think. Good. Salud. For John, his hour having come refers to glorification, the victory on the cross. Jesus in this passage is not ready for that sort of identification, so he resists his mother's attempt to push him forward too soon. Because Jesus' hour in John refers especially to the cross, his response to Mary, he is likely saying, once I begin doing miracles, I begin the road to the cross. Mary's request for activity is given an ironic spin because Jesus will act, not simply on behalf of this wedding, but on behalf of the entire world. His death on the cross will provide far more than wine. Thirdly, let's talk about signs versus miracles. And I borrowed these from the city. I didn't take them off of any post on the street. <laughs> Russ, if you're watching, I'll return them tomorrow. Signs versus miracles. What are signs for? I know some Steinbeck drivers would say, if that sign says go that way, they'll go that way. I realize that. Stop signs are just a suggestion. Jesus and his disciples appear at a wedding, and here he performs his first sign, changing water into wine. Rather than using the synoptic term for miracle, John consistently refers to Jesus' mighty works as signs. As I said, a miracle underscores power and is generally received with awe. Like in Mark chapter 6, many who heard him were amazed. What, 
what's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? But a sign is revelatory. It discloses something about God that was hidden before. Signs are not merely acts of power and might. They demonstrate that God is at work in Jesus and is present in him. They point to something. I have a sign that I frequently have control of. I have a button in the dispatch at the fire department. When I press that button, those lights go on, warning traffic that fire trucks are coming out of the hall, and they're supposed to stop. Supposed to. There's a, it's a sign. It's saying, look out. There's emergency apparatus coming out of the fire hall. Look out. Stop. For John, through this sign, Jesus reveals his glory. Jesus is not merely a man. He's more. He conveys the presence of God in this world. Refer to 1 chapter 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory of the only begotten of God. Since he radiates the presence of God, he appropriately shows forth God's glory. Yes, God had often manifested his glory by doing signs. Exodus 16 with the quail and the manna. Moses' first sign was turning water into blood, Exodus chapter 7. And Jesus' first sign here is turning water into wine. Most of the signs mentioned by John lead into a discourse on a related theme. And you saw what I did with the Passover and the bread. The miracle of the bread, and I am the bread of life. So here we have this first official sign. It occurs in the company of Jesus' disciples and in the presence of his mother. The only reference to a gathering of this kind, in other words, disciples, Jesus, etc., Mary, is found in Acts chapter 2, when Mary and the disciples are together in the upper room, about to be filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And both of these stories are about new beginnings, and both use the image of wine to suggest the joyful spirit of the gospel. On Friday, Stanley referred to joyful spirit and drawing from the well of the joy of our salvation. The results are intoxicating. The generous provision is spectacular and overwhelming. Like a wedding, the arrival of the Messiah is a celebration of a new beginning. Notice verse 51, the disciples had been promised, 1 verse 51, an open heaven. And that's what's happening here. Now they're witnessing the marriage of heaven and earth and the actions of Jesus, providing them with a sign of who he is. Well, let's talk about new wine and also about old wineskins. Our story gives us an important clue as to its meaning when we discover that six stone jars will now be the source of the new wine. These are not merely jars for holding water. They are Jew Jewish purification water. Because this is a large feast, the six jars hold considerable volume, each with a capacity of over 20 gallons. So Jesus' miracle is about to produce over 120 gallons of wine. The stewards are then told to take some of the water, now become wine, and bring it to the head steward. And he makes a pronouncement with telling significance. Common sense teaches us that at most banquets, the best wine is served first. Then the cheaper wine can be served. It's unwarranted to speculate about the degree of intoxication implied by the saying. It simply observes 
that when the palate is more sensitive, superior wine will be more thoroughly enjoyed and cheaper wine more quickly noticed. You see the, you see the point? Jesus delivers something quite unexpected to the banquet. It is superior to anything the banquet has ever witnessed. And John's emphasis here is on quality of wine and its timing. Things served before this wine are inferior. Anything before Jesus is inferior. John 2-4 recalls Jesus saying about new wine and old wineskins in Mark chapter 2. Or Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5, the old has gone, the new has come. Here we see John's themes of messianic replacement and abundance. Judaism's vessels of purification are now being filled with new things. More important, the wine already served is exhausted and Jesus' new wine is replacing it. You have saved the best for last is a theological statement about Jesus and the merits of the religious environment into which he has come. What Jesus represents is far richer, more significant than anything tasted under the old dispensation. And folks, you and I might have religion, but we got nothing. That's the old dispensation. We got nothing if we don't have Jesus. He's the new wine. The old dispensation is represented by the six stone jars of purification. The best wine has been kept till now. Now the word has been made flesh and dwells among us. The enriching, challenging, joyful presence of God in Jesus is present at a country wedding. And that's cause for great celebration. The disciples, seeing what this sign signifies, believe in him, eventually bursting old wineskins. And this new community of faith, intoxicated by the Spirit, breaks out in new ways. Finally, we need to talk about faith and miracles. John makes an important connection between the sign, water into wine, and belief, miracle and faith. 2 verse 11 says, This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. This invites a series of questions about faith and miracles. John calls these events signs instead of miracles because the act of power in itself is less important to John than what the act says about Jesus. John wants us to see beyond the event, see the sign as a means to an end, not an end in itself. In fact, folks, the Bible is a means to an end, not an end in itself, because if we could answer every single question with this book, we'd become followers of the book instead of the God that this book points to. It's a means to an end. And by the way, you can plumb this forever and you'll never, ever exhaust what you find. The story prompts us not simply to promote, to promote Jesus' power and somehow prove that because he has this power, he is who he claims. The story invites us to ask penetrating questions about this person, and when we glimpse his glory, we will discover faith. The disciples saw the sign and believed in him. Does that mean that experiencing the miraculous can be an avenue to faith? To be sure, many people, even demons, saw Jesus' miracles and were convinced of his power, but did not believe in him. 
Simply experiencing divine power does not necessarily lead someone to faith. In fact, if you say, just show me a miracle and then I'll believe, likely suggests that you are not ready to embrace Christ in faith. Remember Jesus' words to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed, in chapter 20. Or Jesus comments after he had fed the 5,000 who then pursued him eagerly, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. The chief problem with faith anchored in the miraculous is that miracles become an end in themselves. People begin to seek bread rather than the bread of life. They see a miracle but not a sign. When miracles no longer bear their re revealing power, when Christ is no longer glorified and experienced through their work, Jesus has little use for them. However, miraculous signs may become a powerful means to discover or strengthen your faith. Is God not interested in displaying his glory here today in the same manner? I think that he is. John proceeds to show how signs produce faith in some and rejection by others. So a key thought in this chapter is the repetition of the idea concerning belief. Again, John has written all of this so that we might believe and by believing have life in his name. There are already five disciples, John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, possibly James. And Jesus understood their need to have reasons for believing. An opportunity came quite naturally at a wedding feast. In a moment, Jesus decides what to do, and the six stone jars suggest a sign to him. The number is likely important, six, the worst number for Jews. It falls just short of the perfect seven. And the pots were there. What if he filled each container with water to the brim? Would not this signify fulfillment, completion? And what if the water drawn from the well should suddenly become wine? Could that not suggest that spirit, living wine, was superior to formal law, water? Would not the entire episode declare to those who saw that he himself had the right to bring the old ways to fulfillment and originate the new? Jesus had no interest in merely making wine. He was revealing himself. His mission wasn't primarily to make wedding feasts merry. It was to lead men and women to belief in him as creator and Lord of his new kingdom. So some concluding thoughts. At Cana, like Bethlehem, like the Jordan River, Jesus' glory, his true identity, was unveiled for all humanity to see. It's there for you and me to see. Yeah, there's also a practical side to this story that we easily miss. Jesus stepped into a wedding of good friends and fixed a simple problem. They were out of wine and the crisis could prove socially tragic unless a remedy was found. It's easy to, for us to spiritualize the work of Christ today and conclude that he's only in the business of saving souls and renewing lives. Is he really interested in the commonplace events of my life? Is he really interested in the simple conundrums of everyday living? This wedding story says yes. He's interested in what you're going through. He's interested in your life. He's interested in those challenges and conundrums that you are facing. We can invite Christ into our dilemmas that seem embarrassingly inconsequential, dilemmas that seem ridiculously practical, and ask him for help. 
And if indeed God is at work in the world in unprecedented ways, then his appearance among us ultimately alters the value of all religious ritual expressions. This is a message that John will give in many of his stories about Jesus. Here's the focus. Jewish rituals of purification, six stone jars. These are being filled with new contents, producing an abundance of wine. I'm guessing most of us seated here and those watching, we want to be filled with new wine. We want the Holy Spirit to activate and motivate our lives so that we will draw closer and closer to Christ. Those six stone jars, those vessels of purification can't be put to former use. The Messiah has touched them and made them obsolete for purification. So religious instruments, having been treasured in the traditions of many generations, must undergo severe rethinking. And I think this is an idea that must be brought into our contemporary world as well. We have created a world of religious vessels no less traditional than the ones described. We've created rituals and customs that have everything to do with religious habits but may, not, may have little to do with God. We have to be willing to let Jesus step into our world and affect a dramatic critique of these things that we cherish and defend. The Cana story says God has arrived and Christ desires proximity and intimacy with us that will not be impeded by ritual forms that no longer bring life. Perhaps this is what we mean when we speak of the church as always reforming itself. Renewal must be sought with an ever-vigilant spirit that looks for renewed religious forms. We need to be open to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives individually and as a church family. We need, we need to allow him to do that. We must courageously look, for, look at our personal Christian tradition, our church programs, our culture, and the habits of our spiritual life and examine each of them. Jesus was bringing renewal to Canaan and to Judaism that would forever change everything. I believe that he no doubt desires to do the same with us. He's come to transform what we do. We're not just playing church. We're not just doing church. We're here together because we want to receive marching orders from our boss. Finally, our story reveals Jesus as a generous and hospitable Savior. And I believe that we are called to model our lives after him as his representatives. We are to be generous and hospitable as well. Let's pray, and then I'm going to ask uh, Jody and Diane to come up and see if there are some questions or responses. Let's pray. Lord, we've, we've tried to understand this first great sign that you did at Canaan. And we ask that you would use your word to speak to our hearts. That you would make our hearts receptive and soft and open to your Holy Spirit. That we would be drawn to you. Drawn to serve you, to love you, to follow you. To be obedient to you. We long for that individually, but also as a church family. And we say, come Lord Jesus, come. In Jesus' name, amen.
All right. Can you elaborate on the analogy of heaven as a banquet or feast? Some of us introverts who don't enjoy modern banquets with forced small talk and, are unim and unimpressive food. Well, yeah, Jody, what do you want to say to that? I also am an extreme introvert, so I hear all of that. <laughs> um, yeah, that's... Um, it, what, none of it will matter because we're only there for Jesus. And um, everything will be made right, so everything we feel would be... All of our insecurities and the places where we think that we lack or aren't enough or don't belong, none of that will be... None of that will be there anymore. So we will be there for Jesus, and it will be beautiful. And again, we need to recognize that, that we're talking about a symbol. We're talking about a, a, what we would call a physical experience, an experience which in the Jewish mind, there, there probably was no event during the year that was as much of a party and as much of a significant event as a banquet, and especially a wedding banquet, because it was seven days. Uh, so... so all of these other challenges notwithstanding, what they're trying to say is this is going to be awesome, right? And introverts will love people in heaven. Yeah, in our own way, right? We can hope. We'll good, be better, good. right? People will be better. Good question, though. Good question. Okay, this isn't a question. It's a comment. There is a lot of symbolism in this passage, but I like the symbol of the wedding where God... Jesus, in this passage, provides his son, the wine, for the people of the world, the bride and the bridegroom. In both cases, there's a strong implication that we, the church, are the bride of Christ, and the setting of this sign taking place at the wedding implies the support that Jesus has for marriage, just as we are the bride of Christ. Here's a question. That was just a... What do you see as some of the spiritual instruments in our church that need to be renovated and transformed? I'll let you think a little bit, Jody. Uh, what, what I'm going to say, what I'm going to say is that we, we've we've tweaked a number of things. Um, that that order of worship that that we used to hang on to when I was a kid. I think we, we had it as if it was written on the bottom of Moses' tablets in fine print, i.e., you don't mess with this. Uh, we've we've start we've and Mo and I we've had these conversations. We said, how about we sing first, then we have the message, and then we sing again because our singing again is also a response to the message, and and so what we're looking at is what are we trying to accomplish, and what actually helps us to accomplish that. And I hope you noticed the song choices. That first song that the praise band sang this morning, did you catch that? That was, that was no accident. That was, that was tied to the sermon. So, so I think that there are things. Doing this Q&A, well, this terrifies some people because the pastor gets to speak his mind and then nobody ever says anything. He goes home, uh, you know, tucks his tail between his legs and goes home in safety. Uh, and, and, and we said, we, we need dialogue, okay? So, in other words, what I'm saying is that, that the, container, the container can change. We're, we're focused on the contents, and the delivery of the contents can change the container. But I'm still a little bit caught on the fact that we still are very, if you look at our church 
10 years ago, yeah. we're still very, we still have traditions and there are still yeah. things that are very, for example, there are little traditions, this is a silly one, but I remember when I came to membership once and I had a thing, I was Sunday school superintendent and I went to the church and I said, I would like to get rid of tuches. The collective gasp, because that has a significance to our generation. We did tuches, the Christmas baggies we get with the paper. We got those, and they were special when I was a kid. And I felt that it has not, no significance to a child today because they get junk food all the time. When I got my Cracker Jacks and my tucha, that was very special because we didn't get that all the time. And then I said, but I want to change it, and I want to do live tuchas. And so what I'd like to do is after, and we did Christmas program at the evening, which again, we changed that. We do it during the Sunday morning. That's just, it should be Christmas Eve. That's another tradition that we hold tightly to. Anyway, I wanted to do live tuchas where we went downstairs and we had them on the table and we fellowship so all the grandmas and grandpas could stay and we could fellowship downstairs. And we did that for the years that I was Sunday school superintendent and then I went away and now we're back to tuchas. I'm not saying tuches are wrong. I'm not saying tuches are wrong, but I'm just saying, did we e do we ever look at what we do and why we do it, and do we analyze it? There are things that we do, and they are sacred cows. That's why I brought it to membership, because I knew somebody had an emotional memory to that event. So there are things that we do in church that you are holding tightly to, because you've always done it that way, and we're scared to change it. And there are people that still get upset that we do our Christmas program Sunday morning instead of Christmas Eve. And there are people that are glad we do it Sunday morning and don't have to take Christmas Eve. How many things do we actually have that we hang so tightly to that are not actually, you know what I mean? I'm just saying it's not that. So in other, in other words, we need to foster creativity. Some people have, have uh, the gift of creativity. We need to foster creativity and, and we need to uh, try to identify what, what you've just called out as sacred cows. Um, and, and then again, we have to ask ourselves what would be, not change for change's sake, but what would be a meaningful change here? Right. Okay. Go ahead. I got one more, but go ahead. No. <laughs> All right, one more. In Jesus, if Jesus' glory has been revealed to all since his time on earth, what role does the Holy Spirit have in this process today? I'm going to trust that this is the Spirit. So according, the last question is, I'm not a traditionalist in any way, so this maybe also will speak into that. Um, about how the Holy Spirit can speak into this. So this morning, my Bible reading was Mark 7. And it said, it referenced this, oh my goodness, I'm gonna cry. It referenced this exact thing about how um, the traditions that we hold on to maybe don't matter as much as the condition of our heart and what we have to offer when we step forward to offer it. Um, I'm an introvert, so this is really hard for me. Like my hand is shaking and my heart is thumping. Um, but my heart, like, I know that he's asking me to offer it. So, yeah, Mark 7 absolutely speaks to what we just said. Yeah. And we don't often talk in these terms, but we do need to remind ourselves that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. 
Like there's no, there's no disconnect there. Uh, so imagine that, God in a pillar of fire or, a, or in a cloud, then Jesus taking on flesh and walking amongst us, and now up it even more, the Holy Spirit living inside each believer, the Spirit of Jesus inside each believer. And, and the challenge for us in discerning the voices that we hear is to discern which is the voice of the Spirit of Jesus and which is not. That's, that's the homework. And the nuance of how Jesus, or the Spirit, however you want to say it, speaks to us is different for each one of us. It's incredible. But even in yeah. the nuance of this story with the wine, who was present to see Jesus turn that water into wine? It was whom the wedding guests would have considered the least of these, mm. the servants, right? Like the new, the servants saw firsthand what Jesus did. Can you even imagine? You think the wedding guests are the most prized people to be invited, but the nuance of the story says something else. It was easier to get Israelites, the Israelites out of Egypt than to get Egypt out of the Israelites. Isn't that true of us as well? Yes. I'm going to leave that and we'll call the praise band up. <laughs> and we'll think about that one. Thank you. <laughs>